Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. It's good to be with you guys. You're new or visiting. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Uh, We're continuing our way through the Gospel of Matthew and through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So over the last couple of weeks, if you weren't here, we covered some uh, especially difficult topics and honestly some painful topics depending on your experience with them. We covered uh, lust, sexuality, divorce, and marriage. And the reason we taught on them is not because we arbitrarily decided to teach on them. We taught on them because Jesus taught on them. So if you missed any of those, I would highly recommend going back, listening to those sermons to see what God has to say on those topics. But here's, here's what you're gonna find. As you, if you really study and look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, you're going to, it's become very clear to you that faithful Christianity, not just Christianity generally, but faithful Christianity is always going to have difficult teachings, it's always gonna have challenging concepts, it's always gonna have radical calls to obedience, and that's not going to be because of the dysfunction of the church, but because of the holiness of who Jesus is. There's just nobody like him. So he's good and he's trustworthy and he's a king who doesn't mince words about what he sees and what he sees is true. That's why Jesus will say things that to us can feel hyperbolic, to us can feel it lacks some clarity, but for him, he sees clearly what's true. He's speaking clearly what he sees. So if his word is about the extravagant and unending love of God, or, or if it's about our purity of speech and sexuality, or if it's about love of neighbor, He is not going to mince his words. He's going to speak with an unparalleled authority. That's why he's so difficult to get your mind around because no one has authority like him. Nobody in this room has authority. No one in this world has authority like him. So he speaks and you kind of, you feel it. You see what he has to say and you realize he is speaking as one who has an authority and a vision and a sight that I don't have. And in this section of his sermon, he's been showcasing his authority while he's teaching on all these different topics and the prevailing teaching of the day and correcting them. So this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is him correcting false teaching. He says again and again, you have heard this, but I tell you this. You've been taught this, you believe this, but I'm telling you, this is what's true. And today he's gonna deal with oaths and keeping your word. That's the next topic that he wants to hit. So look at Matthew 5, verse 33. This is the word of God. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, I'm not sure the last time you made an oath where you swore on the city of Jerusalem, but it's been a long time for me too. Um, It's been a while. 
And so it's one of those texts you read it and you're like, I think I'm good on the oath keeping. Move on to the next thing, right? That's what it feels like. To understand what Jesus is doing here, you have to understand the context because there is a universal human condition he's hitting at, but he's doing it through the context that he's teaching too. So look back at verse 33. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now this phrase, like most of the phrases Jesus has used so far in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a quote from the Old Testament. It seems that way, but it's actually not a quote of the Old Testament. Most of his quotations in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is he's summarizing the teaching of the religious leaders of his day. And what the religious leaders are doing, they're attempting in that summary statement to teach the Old Testament. And so when you first look at that at verse 33, it says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. At first glance, nothing appears wrong with that. Right? All he's saying is you've said if you swear something, you promise to do something, especially if you do it in the authority of God's name, then you should do it. It seems pretty surface level accurate. And the truth is these teachers, we like to present them as caricatures, like there's really these evil people. But what they were doing, they were taking things God had already said in the Old Testament and attempting to apply it to their context. God himself had addressed oaths and pledges and promises in his word. So without going into a bunch of detail, and we really, really could, there were certain occasions in the Old Testament where people would make an oath. They'd make a pledge, they'd make a promise, they'd make a vow, and in order to guarantee that they would keep that vow, keep that oath, keep that promise, they would swear to something that had more authority than them something more sacred to them, and oftentimes they'd swear to God himself to say, no, I promise, I swear to God that I will come through on what I said I would do. And there's a text in Deuteronomy that sheds light onto this teaching in the Old Testament, and it sheds light to what Jesus is correcting in these false teachers. So Deuteronomy 23, 21 says this. Moses is teaching on vows. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. Stop right there. Their statement sounds like a pretty accurate summary of what that verse just said. You make a vow to God, you must fulfill it. But then verse 22 is where they get it, they get it wrong. He says, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Here's the point Moses is making to Israel. He's saying, you don't have to make promises to God. You don't have to take these sacred oaths to prove that you're serious. He's saying, don't do it if you don't want to, but he says, then if you do it, if you swear on his name to do something, then take it seriously, because the third commandment says, don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. What that means is don't use it lightly. If you use his name, then you better do what you said, but you don't have to use his name. That's the point. But here's what the, what the religious leaders had done and the teachers of Israel had done. Instead of vows, vows and oaths being optional, they made them a requirement to prove you were trustworthy, to prove that you were serious. So instead of, so these agreements that they would make, for any agreement they would make, anyone, in that culture, you would have to use an oath, you'd have to make a vow, and mostly to God himself, that you would actually fulfill what you said. And here's what they began to do. 
they began to legislate language in ways God hadn't commanded them to do so. They began to legislate language in ways God had not commanded them to do so. We actually have actual records of the oral tradition of these teachers, of the various laws they created to separate all these different oaths in different classes and categories and what made a valid oath and an invalid oath. And they created all these regulations and rules to make sure your word was true. They took God's word and they, like a lot of teachers do, they added to it. And then over time, what happened, the people could not distinguish between, wait, wait, what's God's word and what's our word? That's what was happening when Jesus is teaching this. And these teachers are highlighting this human tendency in us to try and solve heart-level problems by legislating our language. We all have this tendency to want to solve heart-level problems by legislating language. So instead of dealing with your heart and dealing with what drives you, what fears you have, what dreams you have, what loves you have, instead of doing that hard work, we'd rather legislate words we say and don't say. Instead of doing the hard work of being changed as a person, we'd rather change our vocabulary. Because we really want to believe that change happens outside in, that if I just change the words that I say, then my heart will be changed with it. You see, people do this inside the church and outside the church. So inside the church, an illustration of this is how we attempt to change cursing hearts by creating a category of cursing words that we don't say. Now, hear me really clearly. I'm not advocating... Uh, Advocating for cursing, okay? If you're here and you're a high school student, you're like, mom, told you, I can say stuff. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not advocating for it. If you. If you feel yourself wanting to defend it, this, hear me really clearly. But here's what we do in the church. We create these words that you're supposed to not say and avoid if you want to follow Jesus. Now, is there a list of these words in the Bible? No, turns out the Bible's not in English, so there's not, they're not gonna be in there, Right? Right? Now, once again, you're like, but listen, I'm not saying we should curse, okay? I'm just, you, you, I know you wanna make that argument. But here, here's what we're doing. We're taking explicit texts to talk about our language being godly and appropriate and not filthy and respectful. We're taking that, those texts and we're applying it to our context and knowing how our society works and what we all interpret this word to mean and we abstain from this so they feel respect. Those are all good things. But it's our application of, these, of the word of God. But here's the deceit. The deceit is that we think because we don't have certain curse words in our mouths that we don't have cursing hearts. Just because you use the word dang it does not mean your heart's not cursing other people. Just because you use a different word than you're supposed to does not mean you're not cursing God for the circumstances he's brought into your life. Now again, I'm not saying you should use that language. That language restrains our sin in a sense, but it does not deal with the heart. The church does this, but listen, the world does this too. It's a human thing to do. What's happening right now in our society? We are legislating language all the time. We are increasingly rigid. We have strict rules around terms you can use to address people in various ways and various forms. And much like the caricature of the church in our society, if you use certain words that we all agree are wrong, you get socially ostracized, put outside the camp, so to speak, and you're not let back in until you repent in dust and ashes. Now again, hear me. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. 
it is a very good and godly thing to speak in a way that someone receives as respectful. Do you hear that, what I said? Not what you think is respectful, what they receive as respectful. That's a good and godly thing. But here's the deceit. Just because you don't use racist slurs doesn't mean you don't have any racism in your heart. That's how we distinguish ourselves. Well, I've never said that word, so I'm not racist like them. You've been deceived. That doesn't mean there's no racism in your heart. Just because you don't use misogynistic or homophobic slurs doesn't mean those things don't still reside in your heart. Doesn't mean you don't still think certain things. Because we want to believe if I change my vocabulary, then that means I'm okay. See, language is helpful in respecting other people. It's helpful in restraining the effects of our sin, but it doesn't deal with the idols. It doesn't deal with what's driving that language. And that's what these leaders had done. They saw in the Bible these teachings about oaths. So what'd they do? They created all these regulations around it in order to what? To appear and seem trustworthy. Instead of dealing with the hearts of people that was causing them to be deceitful, they gave them a new system and hoops to jump through to feel like they're godly when they're not. It's not to say those things were wrong necessarily, but they weren't dealing with the heart of the matter. And Jesus is not just here to change your vocabulary words. He's not just here to give you a new word bank to choose from. He's here to uproot the lies that exist in your heart that make you use words to deceive people instead of of being honest to people. He wants to get down to the things that drive you and motivate you, things that you love, things that you fear. He wants to deal with your heart that wants to use words to present yourself as something you're not. See, God's kingdom, it came to set you free, but only truth can set you free. Only truth can set you free because there's freedom in truth, why? Because you don't have to work to keep it alive and keep it going. The nature of truth is that it's independent of you. It doesn't need your help in existing. That's the difference between truth and lies. Lies enslave you and exhaust you, why? Because you have to keep working to keep them going. Lies can't exist without your effort. That's why they're exhausting. That's why they're exhausting. Lies depend on you and on me in ways that truth doesn't. So Jesus is hitting at this deceit that's going on around him. They're trying to cover up with these different laws of oaths that they've made. And he begins to hit at this deceit and he corrects us and teaches us by reminding us just how little power and authority and control you truly have in your life. Look at verse 33 again. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, here's Jesus' teaching. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Jesus says, don't take an oath at all. Now, let me nuance this just a little bit. He's saying, don't take an oath at all in reference to a system that makes him take an oath and a vow for everything. He doesn't mean that you should never take an oath in any form or fashion in any context. I say this because historically Christians have used this verse to say things like, well, then you should never take an oath in a courtroom or you should never do uh, wedding vows because that is a form of an oath to somebody else. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't do those things. What he's saying is in reference to this system, 
you shouldn't have to make an oath at all because your word should be enough. For the vast majority of life's situations, you shouldn't have to do this. Now why? Why should you not make any oaths at all? This is what Jesus says. He says it's not in step with the nature of who God is and who you are. Why do you not make oaths? Because it's not in step with who God is and who you are. He makes these three statements about the presence and authority of God in the world. He says, if you swear by anything, pick the thing that you promise, you vow, the oath that you make, whatever you swear by, it's always under the authority and the presence of God. So there's not a person, a place, or a thing that you could swear by that doesn't make you by nature have to swear by God himself because everything's under his authority, everything's under his command. And the emphasis in all three of those examples is the pervasive kingship of God. Not just God's everywhere, but he exists everywhere as a royal king. So he says, don't swear by heaven. Why? His throne is there. Don't swear by earth. Why? It's his footstool. What's the image? It's a king resting his feet on a footstool on the, over his, where he reigns and rules. What about Jerusalem, the city that they revered? He says, that's his city too. Here's the theological point, church. Every word you say, every word you say, is always before the audience of God the King. Every word. There are no secrets with God. There's no room he can't see, no area of your heart he can't see. Every word you utter is always before him. So Jesus says, don't act like he can't see what's going on here. When you swear by anything, you're swearing by him. And he sees, and he's the King. Jesus exalts God, he expands his presence, and then he humbles us. Verse 36. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. He says, don't even swear by yourself. Why? Because you are truly weak and powerless. He says, you can't even make one hair on your head white or black. Now that feels odd, doesn't it? You're like, if people try to do that, is that a thing people are doing like, all right, come on here. Like, is that, is that a thing in the New Testament that I don't understand? And you're thinking, well, what about someone who dyes their hair? I know some of y'all are dyeing your hair right now. I'm not gonna say nothing, but like we're dying hair right now. Hey, I had hair once, I had frosted tips once. I've been there, right? <laughs> I know, puka shell necklace, I was legit. We've been there. So he's not saying you couldn't do some way to change the color of your hair. The point he's making is something as small and meaningless and fragile as a strand of hair, you don't have the power to even change the nature of that. He's saying you can't change the most insignificant thing about you. Your power and your control in life is very, very small. He's exalting God, he's humbling us, why? To get to the heart, to get to the heart of the way you and I deceive each other with our language. Our default setting is to speak to one another, to speak to one another with no regard for God who's next to you and no humility about who you truly are. Your default setting is to speak with no regard for God and no humility about yourself. Our default setting is to use our words to exalt ourselves and more often than that, protect ourselves and to manipulate other people to having an opinion about us that we want or to get the thing that we want from them. 
That, that's what they were doing when Jesus was teaching them. And that's what you and I do today, both in big and small ways. I saw something online this week that illustrates this perfectly, the ways that we just very subtly deceive one another. Let me show you this graphic. Running late, official glossary, okay? <laughs> On the way means still in bed. In the car, just showering. GPS says 35 minutes, just getting clothes on at that point. There's traffic, leaving the house, parking now, 15 minutes out, can't find a spot, five minutes out, walking in, looking for parking. You all do this. <laughs> all of you do this. I've had people tell me, in the room right now, I'm like, I'm here, I don't see you, where are you? <laughs> You're not, I can't see you. We all do, why do we do this? Why does it feel so much better to say five minutes out when GPS says, literally says 12, right? Why does it feel, why do we think like five minutes is the number that makes, makes me think they're gonna be okay when I show up 25 minutes late? Like why, why do we think that? Why is it appealing? Because our default setting is to present ourselves as more competent, more intelligent, more prepared, more successful, more everything than we actually are. That's our default. Like, like why do you tell lies? Why do you exaggerate? Why do you hide the truth? Like, why is it as a pastor, do I have this tendency to want to round up on numbers of people who attend the events that I put on? Oh yeah, 45 people were there. Was it 42? <laughs> Basically 45. Like, like, like why, why, do I, why do I do that? Why do you exaggerate how much money you make? Like, why, why do you just, maybe it's just 10K more than what you actually make? Why as a high schooler did I always add 10 pounds to my bench press? I don't know, what even 100 pounds? I just add 10 pounds like it did anything. Like, why do you exaggerate what your GPA is? Is it really a 3-2 or is it like a 3-1-2? Like, what's well, basically the same? They're not, that's why you're so bad at school. Like, that, that's not, <laughs> that's why you have a 3 one two. If you're below 312, you're loved here, okay? I want you to know that. <laughs> your works don't define you. God does. Um, get your GPA up. Um, <laughs> employers care. Um, why do we do that? Why is it when we confess sin, if we're being honest, we're given about 20% of the truth? Right? Got a little more quiet there. Like, why is it when you confess sin, you're like, you know, it could have happened, I don't know, day of the week or what time, but this thing happened, that's all that happened, we're good. Like, why, why do you do that? You're like, well, do you remember what day of the week it was on? There's no way of knowing. Like, like why, why, all of us are confessing just enough to feel like we confess, but leaving the things that make us feel embarrassed. We all do it. We're all sort of spinning the world in such a way to feel like we're righteous, but not have to be honest. That's what we all do. It's our default setting. Now, why are lies so appealing to us? Like, what is it about them that it makes us do things like five minutes away? There's a lot of reasons why lies are appealing, but here's the, I think, the ultimate one. Lies make you feel like God. They make you feel like God in this, that when you lie, you are using words to speak a world into existence that didn't exist before. That's what a lie is. It's not a real world, but you're still able to say words that create this little reality in the way that you want it to be, and you feel in that moment like God. Because only he has that authority and that prerogative where he can, his words actually create things as he's speaking them, 
And lies has the illusion of us having a similar authority and power because we don't like the way reality is, so I can change it just a degree this way and I feel a little bit better about what's true. Like all of us want a good reputation or people to perceive us a certain way, but not have to have the substance to actually back that up. That's why they're appealing. And listen, lies in the moment, they feel good. Let's not be disingenuous and act like every time you tell a lie, you hate it. Sometimes you tell a lie, and doesn't it feel good to have them think of you a certain way? That's, you, you wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good at some level. They're appealing because you feel like God, and they're somewhat enjoyable in the moment. But listen, it's so short-lived. It's so short-lived. And some of you, listen, you're, right now, you're lying in small ways. And you're buying the lie that I can keep my lies over here and be honest everywhere else. That's not how it works. Lying one place and being okay with it slowly leaks into other areas of your life till it destroys you. And the thing about lies, like I said earlier, they're exhausting. They're exhausting because it's like lying's like spinning plates. You have to keep frantically going and making sure things look a certain way to keep up the lie. It never tires of calling you back to defending the thing you've created because it doesn't exist. But the kingdom, the kingdom of God comes to you to set you free. But listen, it's always set you free with truth. Set you free with truth. And the truth is going, listen, the truth is going to exalt God and humble you. That's why we don't like it. The truth is going to exalt God and his perfection and it's going to reveal you're not who you'd like to be. Not as consistent or as smart or as successful or as put together or as insert the thing that you'd like to be. The truth is always gonna show you I'm not as whatever as I want to be. And that's why we run from it. And Jesus is going to come to us right now in the next verse and say his vision, his command for his people is to have a life full of integrity, full of humility, so that you use your words to speak plainly and honestly. Plainly and honestly. Look at verse 37. It says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's super simple. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Now, once again, don't create some new legalism where you're thinking any other word than yes or no is is sin. So you're like, someone says, sure. You're like, yes or no. (laughs) I said, sure. Oh, I'm sorry, you're in sin now too. That's cool. Like, like, (laughs) probably not. Let your no be no, okay? Like, that's that's not the point. The point is it's plain, it's clear. And when it says, it says anything more than this comes from evil, he's pointing out, he's saying it's, it's evil. It actually comes from Satan himself when you begin to use words to hide or cover up or be cagey or to present the world in such a way that's not true. He's saying that's not just a little white lie that you're telling. It's you joining in the rebellion. You're joining in the rebellion of Satan to make us unhuman and rebel against God. You're acting like something is true that's not because you should not need grandiose promises for people to trust your word. 
You shouldn't need that. In the kingdom of God, your words should be enough. So if you're a Christian, and most of you are, if you're a Christian, here's a, di- like a diagnostic question for you to ask yourself. Are you known for your integrity? Are you known for it? Like, are, would your coworkers and classmates and friends and neighbors and family members, would they talk about you as someone who is reliable and keeps their word? Is that what they would use to describe you? Integrity is not a term that we use often in the church anymore. And I was kind of bummed this week, and I thought about, man, the main point of this text is about us having integrity. And I kind of thought, doesn't integrity feel kind of old school? I'm like, that is sad if that's the case. But it feels like something that we don't talk about often, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying your life and your words should match one another. That Christians should be known for their trustworthiness. You keeping your word may be the most countercultural thing you could do in our hyper-individualistic and hyper-consumeristic context. This context... This context tells you all the time that your individual happiness is most important. So even if you said you would do something, if it doesn't feel happy to you right now, it's okay for you to bail. I know I said I would be there, but I've had a really hard day, so I can't do that thing that I said I would do. The kingdom of God creates reliable people who choose faithfulness to their word to other people over their personal immediate comfort. That's what the kingdom of God creates. Reliable people who choose faithfulness to what they said they would do over what's immediately comfortable. That we would have the integrity to fulfill what we said or the humility to apologize for not coming through on what we said. Can I tell you how much of a breath of fresh air you would be to our city if we live this way? Like the people... I think people in your life right now who you would characterize, whether they believe in Jesus or not, as having integrity and being humble, those are always the best people to be around. Like integrity and humility, they make the best coworkers, the best classmates, the best friends, the best missional communities, the best neighbors, they make for the best marriages. Like people who possess those qualities are people you love to rely on, people you love to be around. And we kind of buy the lie that, no, the people I want to be around are those who have the most wealth and most success and the most famous, most gifted. And we kind of act like, oh, they're probably the best people to be around, but if they lack integrity and humility, they will drain you. There's no amount of gifting that can, t- can make up for those two things. They're who we're called to be. And for a lot of us in this room, for a lot of us in this room, the most radical Faithful thing you could do this week to follow Jesus faithfully would be to let your yes be yes. So did you say you, you're gonna go to that dinner? Did you say yes on that invite that you didn't have to say yes to? Go. You're like, but there's traffic. Yeah, you live in Austin, Texas, welcome. <laughs> you ever heard of podcasts? Get into them, right, find something. Or just pray and yell the whole time, whatever you wanna do. Did you say you'd get that project in that day? Did you say you'd pay that bill? Did you say you'd pick that thing up? What did you say? Let your yes be yes. 
Listen, keep reading your Bible, keep praying. Just don't leave Jesus there at your house. Go follow him the rest of your life. Keep coming to Sunday services. Keep following him out there. Let your yes be yes. Now some of you are thinking, so that's for a lot of us in here. Some of you right now are thinking, that's right, Tyler, get him. Everybody's flaky. No one's on time. I alone have been faithful to you, God. I'll be there. Oh, it's 8 a.m. or 8.15. 8 a.m. I was there. Right now you're thinking, I'm sending it to this person, this person, this person. In the most passive-aggressive way possible. Great sermon. You should check it out. Like that sort of thing. Really impacted me to talk to you about it. Some of you are thinking that. Get them. Let me say this. First, first, you're up. First, remember every gift in your life, everything you possess, ultimately, if it's good, it's from God. So even your discipline is a gift from God. If you just happen to be an anti personality who's disciplined and just naturally gets things on time, it's not a problem for you, praise God, that's a gift from him, but there's no boasting in the kingdom of God himself. There's no boasting. You don't get to take, Paul says, what gift do you have that you have not received? So the only boasting we have is in God, not ourselves. It doesn't shame people, it uplifts people. Second, if you're there and you're thinking, get them, be humble enough to admit you're probably not as reliable with your word in every area of your life. You're probably thinking of the one area where you are, but not the one where you're a little more shaky. So maybe you're, you're, you're thinking about, like your mind immediately went to work, and you're like, with work, I'm so reliable, I'm on time, I do what I say I'm gonna do. What would your friends say? What would your missional community say? Or maybe your friends would say you're great, but your workplace would say different. If you're married, what would your spouse say? I've just found we tend to immediately think of those areas of our lives that we're strong in and go, oh, that's me everywhere. Like, well, that's you there. So be humble enough to admit that you're probably not as consistent as you think. And last thing is this, remember that ultimately all of us, no matter how disciplined you may be, all of us have such little control over what's going on in our lives. That even for all of our good intentions and diligence, there will be times where we're not able to keep our word, not because we didn't care and not because we didn't try, simply because we don't have the power to do everything we said we could. I mean, this right here has just hit me right between the eyes this week because I, I listen, if, if you're feeling like, like I shamed you and I said, get them, like I, I'm in your camp, right? I pride myself on being reliable. I really do. Like, I just, I wanna be a man that people can depend on, that can rely on and lean on whenever they need it. And I think some of that is good and godly and right. But the sin part of it for me is this causes me not to admit when I'm unable to do something. It causes me to not want my no to be no. Some of you are in this camp. You don't ever say no. I don't ever say no because I don't want you to think that I can't come through on something. I don't want you to think that there's anything to get in the way of me doing the things that I want to do. All of us want to be like God and say, nothing stops me in the promises that I've made. 
But then I'm learning again and again and again, I don't have his power, I don't have his strength, I don't have his wisdom, I don't have his stamina. And so instead of admitting that I can't do something, I work myself to the bone until there's nothing left. And for all of my love for people, my desire to be strong for them, I just learn again and again, I have such severe limitations in doing that. For some of you, your radical thing would be to say no and not think you're loving them. No, you're loving self because you don't want them to think poor, poorly of you. I can't change a hair on my head or make one grow for that matter, right? I had to say that because I wrote this. I knew you'd think it as soon as I said about hair. I knew it, okay? I didn't want to say that. It's a stupid joke, but I knew you'd be thinking it. So I have to grow in learning and let my no be no. And this is where, last thing, this is where we begin to truly understand why this is so important. Like if you're a Christian in here, listen, you belong to the kingdom of God. That's what your, li- that's what your life is about. Your life is not about your career and your name and your family and your success and your education. It's not what your life is about. Your life is about the kingdom of God. It's gonna outlast all of your pursuits. That's what your life is about, is to show, to live in, enjoy, and to show the world this is what the kingdom of God is like. And namely, this is what our king is like. So whose word has more integrity than God's? Whose word is more trustworthy than God's? Our striving to have integrity is not just trying to be moral people. Our striving to have integrity is us as children mimicking the way our father speaks to us. He always comes through on his promises. We're trying to be like dad. This is how he's like with us, and so I'm trying to live it out in the world. He always comes through on what he says. And then even when we fail, even when we have to admit and be humble and say, my words are hollow and empty and powerless and I didn't come through in the way that I said that I would, it only serves to highlight how much better his word is than ours. Jesus came to bring a kingdom that has stronger promises than anything anyone else can give you. See, his good news for you this morning is not, God has shown us how to have integrity. That's not the good news because all that would be is a new law that you would fail eventually and then be kicked out of the kingdom because of it. No, the good news of Jesus Christ for our city, for you this morning, is the fact that all of God's promises about forgiving you and loving you and renewing you and making the world brand new one day are yes in Jesus. He had integrity, not because you did. He was faithful to his words, not because you were. And that now God looks at anyone who would come to him and says, all of my promises are a yes to you in Jesus. And when God says yes, he means it. He means it. 2 Corinthians 1.18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter amen to God for his glory. Does it feel like he's flaky? 
Does it feel like he's the kind of God that says, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. If you're good and you serve me well enough, then I'll make some promises. No. He says yes on the front end, and then look at verse 21. Listen to this language. Does any of this sound shaky to you? Does any of this sound flaky to you? And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There is nothing whimsical about the way God speaks to you. He's not flippant. He's not running late. When he says yes to you, no matter your doubts, no matter your fears, no matter what you may feel, his word is still sure. That's what his kingdom is like. So let your yes be yes and your no be no, not to be a better person, but because that's how your God speaks to you. He doesn't speak in riddles and deceit. He speaks clearly so you know oh, this is how I feel about you. This is where we're going. This is what I'm gonna do for you one day. Do it because that's what you're, if you're a Christian, that's what you're made for. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's what you're made for. That's the kingdom you're after. Do this so that where you work and where you live and the neighborhood that you reside in, that we would be a kind of people that yes, we preach the gospel to the city, but what if we were known more for our trustworthiness than our hypocrisy? What if we were the most faithful people that this city had? What if no one's word could be more relied upon than ours? Well, then we'd probably begin to show them, this is what God's like. And if we have any success, it's because we're just mimicking the Father who loves us. And when we fail, we just point back and say, I'm glad God's not like me. Because in his kingdom, life and love and hope is never up for, today, uh, up for debate. His yes always means yes. Let's pray together. Father, your word to your people is always for our good. And I, God, I know there's many of us that there's things that came up just now as we're listening to your word, God, and there's ways we've deceived, there's ways that we've lied. And God, we have to always start by asking you for forgiveness for even the small ways we deceive one another. Even the small ways we're not honest. Because God, it's not just that we're telling white lies, it's that we're trying to make people think we're something we're not. Because probably, God, at the end of the day, we don't believe you really love us where we are. That truthfully, God, I'm putting up a facade of strength because I don't know if you'll love me if I'm weak. So God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways my yes doesn't mean yes and my no doesn't mean no. God, help us be honest today. If there's people that we need to go apologize to because we know we didn't come through in what we said, If there's people that we know have let us down, help us be gracious and kind to them. And God, thank you that you've given us a kingdom and you've given us a family and you've given us a home to belong to that's not tossed to and fro. That you're not a God who makes murky promises. 
You're not a God who says things and then takes them back. That when you look at men and women in this room, God, and you say forgiven, there is nothing that can stop you from that. God, the only no you say to us when it comes to our relationship with you is a no to losing us. It's a no to letting go of us. We're not yours, God, because we have integrity, God. We're yours because you do. And so, Jesus, when you died for us and you rose from the grave for us, that was the guarantee that every word of God comes true. So, God, make us that kind of people. Make us a community of people who don't lie to each other but love each other. Make us a group of people who there's not a better coworker, there's not a better neighbor. Not because we're better, God, but because you keep modeling for us there's freedom in truth and being honest and exhaustion and lies. And God, for those of us who are terrified of what telling the truth would mean, God, remind us that's like someone with freedom telling someone who's enslaved, it's so much better. Help us be honest. Help us be faithful. God, I want this city to know what you're like and you're not wishy-washy. You're firm, you're resolute, you're our Father. Holy Spirit, help us obey. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.